Perfect. Excellent. All right. I am now joined uh, by Rob uh, Larson, uh, or as I prefer to think of him, the People's Econ Prof. Uh, Rob, for uh, for people who aren't familiar with you, if uh, if we if we end up having any of those, um, who are you? What do you do? Uh, yeah, thanks, Ben. Uh, I'm an econ professor at the prestigious community college level and uh, author of a bunch of fun books. Uh, bashing capitalism that you can use to shore up your economic knowledge, uh, including Bit Tyrants, which was the big one on the Silicon Valley giant guys, uh, and Capitalism versus Freedom, the toll road to serfdom, which is definitely the one that annoys people the most. <laughs> yeah, that, that's definitely the one with my favorite title, uh, since for anybody who uh, anybody who's not familiar with these particular uh right when deep cuts uh, both the title and the subtitle and making fun of libertarian books yeah good stuff and uh, i gotta say this is fun thanks for having me on the call-in show man this is nice i don't have to uh, put on a clean shirt for this format i like that <laughs> yeah uh, so so they are actually beta testing a, a video feature for this but we're not bothered with that today uh so uh, for one thing i just moved into my new apartment uh, actually, the 20 minutes between when we're done here and when I when I jump on YouTube for the main show tonight uh, is going to be me seeing if I can get the green screen set up and stuff. But uh, that's uh, but uh, for now we can just use our voices uh, like the uh, like the kind of talk radio that we grew up with. Yeah, exactly. I think it's about time that uh, we stop the right wing from monopolizing this format. So, uh, yeah, I'm grateful for this uh, kind of software, and I'm excited to to chat with uh, call-in weirdos. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, uh, yeah, I mean, I know, uh, I mean, this is kind of day two or three of a little experiment that I've been running to see if I uh, maintain as... Uh, close to a consistent daily schedule as life will will allow. <laughs> if uh, if I can if I can get enough people, you know, actually tuning in, there are enough people calling in that I can have it be very light on the me or me at a guest part, and it could really be much more caller driven. Since otherwise, it feels like kind of a waste of the format. Like it's just mm. if you're if you're doing what you would do on YouTube or a regular audio podcast. But like maybe there are a couple calls at the end uh, that feels, um, uh, you know, that uh, like like yeah, that that just doesn't feel different enough to justify it. Now, obviously, I know that this is just a much more niche uh, format than YouTube, right? There are just not going to be as many people here as there are, you know, if we if we go live on YouTube for the main show, um, and you know that's fine. Um, I can you know I, I can accept that, but. Um, but you know the thing that I like about the format is that it is interactive. That you know that people can you know not just sort of leave a chat or something that you might read, but like on having what they have to say heard. Uh, so I, I really want this to work. All of which is to say, if you're listening to this, you want to you want to call in, you know, uh, question for for Rob, please get in the queue very soon and we are gonna i hope if there are any start taking calls in the next few minutes but uh before that i, I guess i just had two sort of general things i wanted to touch base with you about i mean one of them is obviously um you know you uh, 
you know, you, you are a econ prof, you, you know, you teach economics for a living, you've written books about economics. Uh, what's your, you know, what's your sense of, uh, of what's going on right now? In other words, like there was a lot of 2022 was dominated by people worrying, you know, for, like for good reason, because there's a real problem about, uh, about inflation, uh, the most recent times that I've been on the you know gringo side of the border, uh, it's been <laughs> in California where gas prices are obscene. Uh, you know what, what's your sense of of, of what's going on and, and whose fault it is? <laughs> uh, yeah, well, uh, the inflation thing has been pretty brutal, and it goes to show what a whipsawed economic condition that we're in. Because you know we all recognize that coming out of COVID. A number of hundreds of thousands of Americans took early retirement or aren't coming back into the workforce since COVID because you know they're concerned about catching uh, that and the various other viruses, or they don't have childcare. Uh, you know, they have someone they have to care for now. Uh, so we've had like an unusually tight job market, and big diseases tend to have this effect where they put where they take a lot of people out of the workforce, maybe by you know, pushing them onto the sidelines, like with COVID or all the way up the spectrum to the Black Plague, which killed, they estimate, about a third of the workforce of Europe and really put more bargaining power in the hands of the peasants, enough to accelerate, some say, uh, the transition from feudalism to capitalism. Mm -hmm. So it's a long-running sort of historical trend. Uh, but I have to say, uh, we all kind of going into this year, seeing how inflation you know, was staying longer than anyone expected. We haven't had high inflation, you know, in over 40 years, like in my lifetime. Uh, so as that happened, people were thinking, okay, we have tight job markets, people leaving because of disease. It'll be more bargaining power for workers, which is encouraging. And we've seen a lot of just fantastic labor activity in the last couple of years uh, to a lot of people's surprise. Uh, but what we're seeing now is that inflation has been high enough that even though wages are going up quickly for the first time in most of our lifetimes, they aren't going up as fast as inflation is. And so most of the workforce has taken a, in real purchasing power terms, the inflation adjusted or their real wage has actually decreased uh, over the last couple of years. And with the money tightening cycle, the federal reserve is on, you know, most economists expect a recession this year. I certainly do. Um, and, you know, that, that doesn't say that much, though. You know, and a recession is like a war or an election. It just tells you very basically what's going on, how it will evolve over the next year or two. I mean, we have so many, you know, opposing global economic currents right now. Uh, I'm, I, I never like to give economic forecasts. And now sure. I just gloat about how smart that decision is, basically. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, that's fair. Like, it, it does, I, I will say, I mean, kind of moving just a little bit from uh, economic analysis to, you know, politics, that it, like, there is this sort of frustrating thing where on the one hand, um, like, the, the analysis of certainly at least the grassroots right is very simple, that Brandon did it, uh, but, and, and, you know, that's, obviously kind of stupid because, you know, we're talking about global trends. Um, but, but I also feel like as is so often the case with, with so many things, if, uh, you know, if, if all you sort of end up doing is, you know, like it's, it's very easy doing what you and I do to mm -hmm. get sucked into this thing where all you do 24 seven is sort of like dunk on the dumb shit that right wingers say, because 
it's fun because they will give you a never-ended supply of it. Uh, so, you know, it's very easy. Uh, and, you know, and, and to a certain extent, it's important and necessary work even. Uh, but, but I also feel like that can lead to a lot of bad things because if you're not working forward from your own analysis of the world, you're just kind of working backward from like owning your enemies, then, you know, I think you, you end up, you know, you end up like saying a lot of things that are at best severely incomplete. And so here too, it's like, okay, you're, yeah, sure. I mean, this is not like, you know, uh, you know, Brandon pushed the liberal bad economy button and like, that was the problem. <laughs> Uh, you know, like they, we are talking about global trends, and it's certainly the uh, fact that we're that like the largest um, European war since World War II uh, is happening right now uh, does not help, especially as far as like the global food crisis part goes, because like so much wheat comes from Ukraine. Uh, you know that like there are things that you could say about. You know Saudi policy that have to have to do with the you know the oil situation, et cetera, et cetera. But like also though, you know let's let's not uh, let's not let Brandon off the hook because um, there is actually a lot of stuff. I remember Bronco Marchant teacher wrote an article for Jack that pointed some of this out kind of in the middle of last year. There is a lot of stuff that like where better more leftist policies would help a lot, like ranging from um, ranging from. Okay, you know Medicare for all. I mean, what if the what if the individual commodities that causes the most pain when prices rise is pharmaceuticals? Um, yeah. Up through what I know is considered to be like absolute batshit crazy commie stuff, which is nationalizing the domestic oil industry. Which you know, I, I nevertheless don't understand why that's considered to be batshit crazy commie stuff because it's not like there are uh, plenty of you know, countries, capitalist countries that have done that in the past. Absolutely. And, you know, like all those would be very helpful moves, um, you know, and of course, you know, the Biden administration is, you know, very you know, center right, like Clinton and Obama's were broadly. So the best we're going to get is releasing some couple million barrels from the Strategic Petroleum Reserve, which really is not enough to significantly to meaningfully move prices down in an economy as gigantic as our $22 trillion GDP. Uh, those would all be fantastic moves, you know? And again, a lot of it is out of our control or at least out of our immediate control. Like the, yeah, the Russo-Ukrainian war is kind of the most obvious case. Uh, and a lot of this, you know, original inflation wave happened because corporations spent 30 years being super smart and not carrying a single item of inventory ever. <laughs> that uh, just-in-time inventory practice, you know, it does save firms money. I mean, the savings aren't made up. It costs money to in warehouse inventory, and you have to have people keeping track of it, and there's you know, usually software that goes with that. So if you have far, far less inventory and your, you know, your, your product arrives just in time, which is literally the way it's been referred to, all the <laughs> I remember being a young grad student thinking, that just sounds like... That just sounds like recklessness. <laughs> You're saving a few pennies, but if, but of course, if anything goes wrong, things don't arrive just in time. Like just in the nick of time is such a bad <laughs> characterization for how things flow through our system. You would brag about that in your personal life if you showed up to everything yeah. just in time. <laughs> We're uh, going out tonight, baby, because my just barely in time paycheck having practice <laughs> is so successful. <laughs> Ooh, I wonder if it's take me out again. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, it, and like, this is also, I mean, it's the same kind of thing, like with, you know, what just happened, actually, you know, to my mind, one of the most disturbing things 
domestically at least. Um, I mean, there's the usual kind of uh, buffet of war crimes abroad, but like domestically, one of the most disturbing things the Democrats have done in a long time uh, was voted to crush the rail strike. And if you look at what the underlying issue was there, like what it would have taken to make the workers happy I mean, literally, it's just like, give give us a few days of sick days, sick leave a year. And the reason why the companies weren't willing to do that, I mean, it's not just that they're like uh, greedy, barely human ghouls, although, you know, let's not put that off the table too hastily. But um, it's that they they have a business model that's, you know, very much in the same spirit as this just in time shift that you're talking about, where like you have they've like reduced their workforce so dramatically you know it's like oh actually if we do it just so we can get by with like you know 30 percent less rail workers than we had before that the uh that like there's just you know if, if people call in sick like it's actually a huge problem for them given that ridiculous business model mm-hmm. absolutely and i love that case uh, that's a perfect example as well yes because and when you look at the demands of these outrageous, uh, you know, greedy <laughs> rail operators, yeah, it's for an amount of time off and just like basic, you know, guarantees of time off. So you can have a few days with your family and like plan for them rather than having them at some random time because our order was low or whatever. Like it's stuff that the executives of, you know, the rail firms like Burlington, Burlington Northern Santa Fe is the one that has a giant, it's giant base in Tacoma where I live in Washington state. Uh, and it's majority owned by Berkshire Hathaway, which of course is Warren Buffett's uh, giant yeah. investment firm. And there's a lot of sympathy for Buffett for his Bill Gates philanthropy giving. And of course, socialists often have a soft spot for, for Buffett for occasionally blabbing about how there is a class war and his class is winning it, LOL. Um, you know, which is a valuable thing for him to have said. And am I putting it in my new book? Yes, I am, of course. Uh, but when we look at the practices by his firm, you know, it's driven by, yeah, the market system. And uh, we have to lower the amount of uh, labor expense that we do per rail mile in any way that ma- in any way we can. And it is incredible if you know anything about that industry. Like what's taken attention lately, of course, was the main subject of those collective bargaining agreement disputes, mm-hmm. the uh, you know, staffing practices and notification for hours and sick leave were kind of the big ones there. But if you look into it, the general conditions are completely nuts. Our huge railroad oligopoly now, I mean, really, they're regional monopolists. You know, mm-hmm. the details are interesting. But uh, these firms, like, they, they tend to run train consists, you know, specific trains with engines and uh, cars on them that are over two miles long. Just insanely long trains that together weigh tens of tons. And the goal of the industry for years has been to get it down to a single engineer on each one of those trains. Like one beating human heart running these gigantic tens of tons sideways skyscrapers that roll across the landscape filled with chemicals and oil and livestock and every other damn thing. That's that's even better than just a tie. I mean, Jesus Christ, what happens when that guy has a heart attack? Exactly. And these the industries now they have you know the literal dead man switch and so on. So theoretically, if these things yeah are not being actively operated, they should shut down on their own. But I think we all have a certain amount of well earned skepticism of these social fail safes across society, uh, including in this case. So it's incredible, man. And that's like a classic case. You know, all these tie ups we've had that have been original. uh, Yeah, it's all artifacts of these industries. Yeah, I always think about the line in Dr. Strangelove, you know, you know, President, you know, they 
President, uh, not Truman, but like seems like Truman, you know. So, yes, general, Muff, President Mufflin, yes. Yes. Uh, if, you know, when you instituted human reliability test, you know, sure sure nothing like this could happen. <laughs> and, you know, the general says, well, Mr. President, I wouldn't condemn a whole system because of a single fallow. I, my brother put that film on over Christmas and I was like, oh, this movie, I've seen it. And I had such a great time watching it. Uh, everyone should. But also just real fast to get back to something yeah. you were saying before, yeah. Ben, uh, about, uh, you know, just having an analysis and a program we're fighting for and not just focusing on dunking on the right, which of course has its place, as you said. Sure, and sure. Is, a, is it fun? Of course it is. Uh, but it sometimes does feel like, ooh, that's a really good dunk on Jordan Peterson, who became the you know, uh, premier of Ontario today. Like, while well, the right moves on to real victories because they have money and institutions that give them structure, uh, we're getting great dunks in because their ideas are those of a cranky toddler who doesn't want to go to bed. But until we have enough people who like our positive program, uh, you yeah. know, we're going to be sniping at them from down at ground level like we are now. So pick up a book. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I mean, it's it's literally that that joke that, uh, that Slavoj Žižek likes to... Uh, likes to tell it's like this like crass old eastern european joke uh like somebody that what's he likes where it's like the guy um uh, was it there's like the uh I'm, I'm gonna mess this up slightly but this is the you know this is the gist of it there's like uh somebody like when the mongols were overrunning russia or something there's like this 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 peasant to you know the the uh the you know mongol warrior comes through and they have a uh and he he not only you know he not only sexually assaults the peasant's wife but he makes the peasant like cup his balls while he does it and then after after he leaves you know like the peasant's cackling and she's like oh my god what are you happy about it's like oh well i showed him you know i let his balls get dusty <laughs> who's laughing now uh, yeah, exactly. it's, it's true, yeah. So the, the, all the more reason for us to, yeah, have a have a real program to attract people and build an institution. No, absolutely. Um, and, and yeah, I think that this is, um, you know, I mean, there's, there is a sort of general pattern there that's, you know, worth taking a step back and, uh, and thinking about. Uh, but, um, you know, in terms of the way that, like, oftentimes I'll even see this thing that, you know, I feel like I'll see this pattern like on Twitter a lot where somebody um, there's, there's some sort of like kind of not great centrist neoliberal thing that will happen. And some reactionary lunatic will get mad about it from a completely deranged perspective. And then leftists will spend all their time making fun of the deranged perspective and never quite get around to talking about the original, you know, the original issue. You know, it's like, well, that thing wasn't great either, but uh, I love, I love Colin. Uh, I, uh, I said I love the interactivity earlier, and, uh, and I love that literally anybody could, uh, could, could do this. So uh, yeah. let, me, let me say, as they never used to say on old-fashioned uh, AM radio, uh, we have a call here from uh, Come Guzzler 69 What's on your mind, Guzzler 69 All right. Uh, he, can't, he can't talk. He's guzzling. It's he can't speak. Oh uh, yeah, uh, Mr. Guzzler, if you uh, uh, if if you'll note at the bottom of the screen, there's the microphone icon. So if you just want to hit that, to unmute yeah. yourself. Well, uh, while we wait to see if the uh, see if he figures out the uh, the unmuting, um, yes. let's. Um, 
you know, I, I guess I could start to ask you about the, uh, you know, the big thing that I, uh, I wanted to ask you about um, that we haven't gotten to yet, you know, which is uh, when I was talking to you earlier, I said, hey, you want to come on the, oh, nope, here we go. We'll do this after the call because oh, Mr. Gosling. Oh, no. He unmuted <laughs> himself and then, then I think accidentally hung up. Uh, uh, life's challenging. Yeah, Mr. Guzzler, please call back. Yes, absolutely. Please do call back. Uh, so uh, while, we were, uh, while we were waiting for that, I do want to, uh, to just say um, that the one thing that I, I was still going to ask you about that, that I didn't get, um, and it's, it's funny, actually, because you know, your Warren Buffett example is maybe a perfect way to to set it up because because I can remember a time like back in like you know the 2000s when um the left essentially didn't exist you know you're I don't know I think not too far from my age you remember what I'm talking about oh yes uh like uh (laughs) you know like there was uh there was a DSA but it's largely unrelated to the organization that existed now it was like a it was it was a uh, it was like a mailing list of you know three hundred people who probably average had an average age of sixty five. Uh, I'm exaggerating a little bit, but only a little bit. Um, and um, and there was um, I mean you know I guess there was like democracy now and stuff, but you know that was um, like even if you think back to like the the old anti globalization protests, mm-hmm. you know. And all that stuff, even Occupy Wall Street, which is after the time period I'm really talking about, which is the first decade of our century, um, almost nothing ever even used the S word. Like it was just sort of like oh, anti-corporate, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, back then, all right, I'm going to take Jonathan's call in just a second, but I, I, I do want to at least set this up, and then we can maybe get your answer after Jonathan's call. Yeah, sure. uh, you know, back then it was all like sort of uh, anti-corporate. Um, uh, like, you know, it's like, yeah, you were sort of like progressive, anti-corporate, you know, like, um, and it wasn't all that left. I mean, I even remember, like, if you even think back to the Nader campaign, I mean, like, you know, like Bernie Sanders is like 10,000 miles to the left of the program that Bernie that Ralph Nader ran on in, uh, in 2000. Um, so back in this period, like, I remember, you know, the reason I set it up that way is it's like, well, if you had these inclinations and you were reading political commentary, it was like largely by people who are sort of vaguely left liberal. And, um, and so I remember reading a lot of stuff back then where like if Warren Buffett was mentioned, it was always got to kind of like pat him on the back for being the good rich person. Yeah. And uh, it's like, Oh, see, you know, he said this thing about how his secretary pays a higher tax rate than him, you know, but, uh, uh, but yeah, I mean, his, uh, his rail company, BNSF, you mentioned earlier. Um, like I looked into this when I wrote for the Daily Beast about the rail strike uh, vote, and like at BNSF, the policy is literally not like not only are there no paid sick days, but if you miss work, work for any reason, I mean bleeding from the eye, and then. Um, and then if your point balance goes down to zero, you're suspended. And if, uh, and if it goes down to zero a second time, you, you lose your job. You know, this is, you know, and, and this, this says something about, you know, this is, you remember, this is the good rich guy. 
Um, and, and this takes us to what I want to ask you about post-Jonathan, which is your new book that you mentioned uh, when, um, you know, when I asked if you wanted to, to, to join me today for, uh, for, for Colin, you, know, you mentioned that you were working on, uh, you were working on your new book, which is about the ruling class. And, um, and, and I want to hear about that. But first, let's hear from Jonathan. Caller, go ahead. Okay, in the interest of actually, yeah, just describe your positive program. It's it's really simple, you know, like I don't want to just dunk on everybody else. If you're king for one day, and if for nothing else, you're going to force the vote because they have to like manually undo everything that you did. You get to see who's not on board. But what's the monetary system that you leave us with? What does it look like? Oh, right on. Well, you know, that, you know, that's the biggest question there is, but that's, that's great. You know, yeah, we're, so we like to talk about our positive agenda. I mean, I, I try, I usually kind of look at it like what we want near term versus long term, you know, like near term, we have lots of policies that are, you know, large reforms, to the existing system. You know, the obvious one is Medicare for all, which we never shut up about various forms of the Green New Deal go further. What those are about is somewhat diminishing the private sector of the economy at the, you know, to the benefit of the public sector. And so taking decisions about whether, what kind of energy to use. So we burn fossil fuels because we will never, you know, future generations will pay the larger part anyway of those costs. You know, it's a market issue. And so moving that over to the public sector, we can at least begin to internalize those external costs. And a lot of programs like Medicare for all, but also things, you know, other aspects of the sort of near-term Bernie sort of social democratic agenda, which are relatively modest reforms in a lot of cases, like having a national living wage uh, bill or card check for organizing unions, uh, all these very favorable, you know, achievable bills, you know, uh, policies that have existing even, you know, congressional language in place. Like that's the near term stuff. And so if I'm talking to people who I think are more receptive to that, that's what I would refer to. For a bigger program, you know, it's, it's the program of you know, participatory socialism. And when you go to work, your boss doesn't tell you what you're doing that day and that week. You and all your coworkers have to figure that out. And that might take more time and be a pain in the ass, but it means we're no longer being told what to do by Warren Buffett's employees who will tell us to do whatever is in the interest of that firm stock price this fiscal quarter. You know, so changing from an economic system based on the nearest term of profits and ignoring workers' rights and taking everything away from us that's possible and making us dependent on subscription services for everything and paying all of our income for rent and pharmaceuticals and moving to a system where we operate for human need instead of profitability. And that would mean, yeah, probably public ownership of large scale capital. You know, not your personal home and clothes, but, you know, the oil refineries and data centers and huge rail yards that make our economy function. Like ownership and control of those things brings power over the productive system. And so any capital, any property like that, that is large and important enough to bring power in the marketplace with it should probably be probably be socialized and controlled by the workers and being national or some other kind of socially held property. Uh, That was pretty long winded. But that was how I conceive of the program, you know, more yeah, that, equality that was, at the expense yeah, that, of the private sector. very practical, very though. Practical. I was I going was for something going a little bit more, <laughs> well, philosophical. That's why I use the word king. Like, it's all, you're talking about politics and practicable short-term goals that are reasonable. And But the question is, like, no, you're actually the king, and you can do whatever the hell you want. And I'll narrow it down even more. <laughs> so there's, like, fiscal and monetary and then there's like creation and destruction. 
So for, for fiscal creation, I go into like, well, universal basic services. It's the printing of the money that the treasury spent. Hmm. And I would do, yeah, Medicare for all. You saw the energy and I'm like, okay, well, that's fine. But I would concentrate more on the biggest line item cost on the poorest people's cost of living, which is like housing yeah. and uh, yeah, and Medicare. And then probably, uh, you know, free community college, stuff like that. Okay. So that's fiscal creation. And then for fiscal destruction, I would or like do land tax and wealth tax and erase all other taxes. And then you got monetary side, which is like, well, monetary destruction is we're already done with that because that's just like the repaying of any debt for any reason to any bank, you know, and then there's monetary creation. And this, this is the, this is the one, this is the one I'm really asking about. Do we have a central bank? Uh, like what, why, what's, what purposes do they serve? You know, well, like, what me, do you leave just... us with there? Let me, let me just jump in just to, just for a second. I mean, I would point out, by the way, that the uh, a lot of what Rob mentioned is, um, you know, sh very practical, short-term stuff. But also, you know, he also talked about workers' control of means of production, which is, you know, doesn't get much more uh, ambitious than that. But um, and it, is, it is ambitious. But where does money come from? That's what I'm asking. What, it, yeah, what are so, dollars to you? What should they be so, to you when you're done? Yeah, so, so so I just wanted to say, like, I, I think one reason why, um, you know, however you answer it, and, and I'm not by any means uninterested in Rob's answer to this question, uh, but however you answer the question about, you know, what money is and uh, how it either does work or should work, um, which are obviously, you know, hotly contested questions, even among, um, you know, economists with roughly Rob's politics. Uh, like, I, I do think there's a different reason to, to focus on public ownership of um, of banking, which is that it's um, which is that it's something that you need to do uh, in order to uh, to be able to transition, I think, to those longer term goals that um, that Rob is talking about, you know, because I, I think that if you have a group of um, a group of ordinary working class people who, who say I would prefer to have like a democratic workplace uh, and, you know, and, and we want to be able to elect the committee that runs the place or whatever. Um, if that's, how, you know, there's a, you know, that does exist within normal capitalist economies, but it's super marginal. Like it's like in, in every case, like it's, it's a tiny, tiny percentage of the economy. And there are a lot of reasons for that. Uh, but I think one of the, one of the big ones uh, has to um has to do with, uh, with 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 financing and what kind of risk most ordinary people are rationally willing and unwilling uh, to take on. I mean, this is this is like a true thing that libertarians will sometimes point out in these discussions. But I, I think that that doesn't mean we just have to live with what we have now. I think if you have, uh, you know, I, I like I really like David Schweikart's book After Capitalism, for example, where he talks about this that if you you know, you could you could easily imagine a system uh, where the the main um, procedure for starting a new enterprise uh, was not the sort of usual uh, buffet of options for private finance that we have right now, but uh, but grants from uh, from publicly owned banks uh, where you know it wasn't free money. You know, you'd have to you know you'd have to pay essentially interest on it, but uh, but you would. Um, you know, but but it would like even out a lot of those issues that I think I think 
in practice really really stop worker cooperatives from being a very big part of a global capitalist economy. But that's me. I want to hear from Bob. Yeah. Uh, thanks, Ben. Yeah. Th- these are, you know, I love these kind of subjects and, uh, to get to, uh, what Jonathan, the caller was, uh, uh, asking about in that sort of second portion there, um, be more interested in the monetary, uh, having yeah. to do, you know, money and interest rates policy rather than fiscal, which, you know, usually is spending and tax type of stuff, uh, just for people who aren't into econ already. Uh, so monetary policy is interesting. And of course, yeah, it is like Ben said, it is, uh, uh, a lot of a lot of controversy these days, uh, especially with the advent of uh, MMT, modern monetary theory, uh, which is a big deal. Uh, especially back where uh, I went to grad school, the U of Missouri, Kansas City, which is a great program. Anyone interested in econ should check out. Uh, that said, personally, um, when it comes to money, you know, I tend to have a more classical view about money itself, like putting aside the you know the existential question of how is the economic system organized. Most economic systems of every type still have some form of money so individual people can pursue their very individualized, you know, consumption and, you know, experiential uh, needs. I don't think that's outrageous as long as the amount of money per person is within a, you know, a limited range. Uh, And and so, you know, earlier, uh, the Jonathan mentioned, uh, you know, land tax, like a Georgia's policy to, uh, take wealth away from the ruling class and sort of you know limit their clout and fund all of our fun left wing uh, projects. That's great. I tend to just be more in favor of a generalized wealth uh, tax, income, assets, inheritance. If you get it all under one policy, I feel like it's a little I'll easier. Do land to... at the state level and wealth at the federal level, and there's reasons for that. But I but go hmm. on. Yeah, thanks, John. Uh, so the issue though about what you know money is, I mean you know. In a classical econ, you learn that you know money has these different functions. The big one is medium of exchange, so it's much easier to have commerce and trade of goods because you don't have to directly swap. You can use money, which is much easier. And you have other functions like store of value and so on, which are fine. Uh, to me, I tend to – I mean, I think this is a very funny phrase to use. As far as I know, it comes from uh, – uh, you know, the left uh, radio host and writer, Doug Henwood, but I think being a sound money socialist, as hilarious an expression as that is, is not a crazy way to look at this issue. Kind of the way I see it is, if you look at the last few years where central banks have sort of been stepping in to where fiscal policy used to be in terms of helping us manage the business cycle, you know, with yeah. traditional Keynesianism, you do big government spending during recessions. So we get out of recessions sooner and smooth out the business cycle in that way. FDR was a f- fiscal cudgel, and now we have a monetary cudgel. Yeah, indeed. Now the fiscal policy is so, uh, you know, very, very gridlocked and more controlled by the, you know, economic forces of society in this, yeah, neoliberal period now. Like monetary policy is kind of the part of government that really responds to recessions and cuts interest rates, which, you know, can help with recessions, but it's much more limited than what fiscal policy can do. So anyway, the result of all this for me tends to be, I mean, I think that you know, money is something that you want to hang on to. But if you look at what the, the, the central banks have been doing, like with zero interest rates, you know, at the, you know, at the federal funds rate level, or having even negative rates like the European Central Bank and the Japanese were doing for some time, you know, the goal of these is all to stimulate the economy. But if you look at how people respond to them, and there's a lot of discussion of this, of course, you find is that uh, people get so spooked by these policies 
you know, they get, they, they hear negative interest rates. I better save some money for when this blows up in our faces. Like it spooks people. And just as a socialist, my feeling is we're already asking people to make these huge changes in society and change the economic structure and have these big new policies and, you know, tax these people for it. I tend to just personally on an individual level have the response like, aren't we asking enough of everybody before we go into goofy money? changes, which you know, might make sense in the future. I'm not trying to laugh up all the, all the research that people have done on that, but just to the extent that I feel like we already have such a giant program, I'm content to let like the dollar exist as long as most of it is in the hands of the majority this time. <laughs> yeah, I, I think there's something to be said for like what like John Romer talks about in his book, A Future for Socialism, that like mm. um, people are, uh, people are worried, like, you know, like, 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 people get nervous at talk of experiments for like very good reasons. Uh, but, uh, but also it's, it's, uh, but also like, uh, just saying no more, no more experimentation is, is, is kind of a social historical disaster, but you know, you can sort of vary one, um, one factor at a time, right? As, uh, you yeah, know, you know, it's, yeah, dude, it's a lot to ask. Like, much like in, you know, much like in real experiments, you know, you can, you can, you know, you can adjust one parameter at a time. Um, but uh, in any case, um, so uh, Mr. or possibly Dr. Guzzler uh, keeps slipping in and out of the queue. I see we've also got a call from Jenny, who if this is the same Jenny I remember for a previous call, I actually think she and Rob will probably have a really interesting conversation, which is a good reason for Rob to come back again very soon. Because uh, uh, I always feel bad when I can't take every call in one of these, but one of the first things that you learn in an introductory economics class is about opportunity costs. And uh, in this case, um, since in the next 15 minutes, I have to, uh, I have to set up my green screen and everything for the, uh, for the, the YouTube show, show tonight. Uh, so uh, I'm, I'm not going to be able to keep on taking calls right now, but this is great. Uh, we will have Rob on very, very soon again, I promise. Uh, but Rob, so I set this up and you didn't say it. Like the last minute of the show, you want to uh, you want to say a little bit about what this book about the ruling class is going to be? Oh yeah, for sure. Thanks. Yeah, for sure. Thanks, man. Uh, yeah, it's, this is the book project I'm working on now. Um, sadly, yeah, it is the project uh, that's you know, currently getting developed. So it's, I'm hoping for it to come out in spring 2024. A uh, great time for a pissy book to come out, though. I feel. Uh, yes, this is my book on the just the, the American and you know to a sort of lesser extent the global ruling classes, and maybe look and mainly uh, looking at the owning class part of the ruling class. So less about the political side, although you know, of course that figures, uh, and more looking at you know who owns the wealth. What can we say about that? And so I do have one chapter on like the statistical analysis, who owns the wealth, how has that changed over capitalism, what's happening right now. Uh, but the majority of the book is looking at just all the other ramifications of our class society. And so we have a fun uh, chapter on the clans, which is the different sectors of the ruling class, you know, Silicon Valley, Wall Street, uh, you know, Madison Avenue, and then globally looking at, you know, the European elites and the Gulf, uh, you know, Arabs and the Russian oligarchs and the Chinese kingpins. Uh, very similar patterns in all these capitalist economies, so it takes less work than you might think. Uh, but it's going to be a very short book, though. Uh, we're looking to keep at 150 pages or less, and I just want it to be a very fun book. You know, when I, when my, when I write these books, I try to make them readable. So if you aren't already holding a graduate degree in economics, you can get some value out of them. Uh, the books I aspire to write are things that you could, like, hand to someone on the subway to, like, here, just read this and shut up. Uh, so I'm aspiring to write that for the uh, ruling class. Be a fun uh, 
little romp through the uh, just outrageously offensive world in which, you know, a number of billionaires have so much wealth now they have personal space programs. That's, you know, time was we taxed them so we could have a public one, but now it's for private property and you take your rich friends into space and you make sure CNN covers it and it goes really well. Uh, just an incredible thing to uh, watch the realities of uh, concentration of wealth on the modern scale. As much as we've been here before with percentages, that was the Gilded Age with a much, much, much smaller economy than today. Uh, so the picture is you know, familiar, but it has a lot of new crazy features. And the chapter I'm working on right now is uh, the one on the lifestyle of the uh, wealthy and powerful people here, which is always, you know, what gets reported on and what people you know, are sort of envious and sort of hateful toward. Uh, there's an incredible, uh, just an incredible amount of fascinating, steamy, disgusting things uh, to learn about there. So that's uh, what's going into this uh, fun book. I'm very excited about it. Uh, absolutely. And I'm excited to read it. Um, so well, before I go, I just want to say, again, I am going to be on, well, for people who are going to say live, won't help you if you're not, but uh, going live on uh, YouTube in 10 minutes to, uh, I'm going to be talking to Crystal Ball and RM Brown about some of the very, uh, many uh, very normal things that happened in the very normal year of 2022, uh, since it's our first show of the new year after being off for a month uh, on the main show on YouTube. Um also, for this show, uh, I know I keep saying that we're doing the regular consistent daily time at uh, 4 p.m. West Coast, 7 p.m. East Coast, so people know when to tune in. Uh, actually, in this case, uh, for a few days, we're going to have, well, we're going to have to vary that for a day and then probably just be off for a couple days. Uh, so uh, tomorrow morning, because this is the only time everybody could do it, uh, I have, uh, I'm going to be on um at uh, nine in the morning, where I am on the West Coast, so New East Coast, uh, because uh, to to host a discussion uh, between uh, Bronco Marchetich from Jacobin and Glenn Greenwald, because uh, a few weeks ago this, the, the discussion kind of kept getting delayed. Um, you know, there was a disagreement between the two of them on Twitter about some of what Glenn had said about what he called the Bernie AOC left. And even though I obviously have a, uh, a dog in the fight, uh, I, wish, <laughs> you know, uh, I, I still uh, said, hey, if you guys want to talk about this on the show, I think I can host a respectful uh, discussion. So we're going to try that uh, tomorrow morning. Again, that's noon on the East Coast. Uh, tomorrow, uh, looking forward uh, looking forward to that. And then because I'm going to be traveling because I'm going to go speak, I'm going to be speaking at Western Connecticut State University uh, later this week, so uh, we're going to be off uh, on uh, probably Wednesday through Friday and then back on Saturday, at which point, until the next time I have to leave, we really will be doing the, uh, the 7 p.m. Eastern every day when possible. So thank you again, Rob. Thank you, everybody, for calling in. Uh, people who tried to call in and I did not get to, uh, you know, please do. Again, I, will, I, I promise I'll have Rob back on soon, so you can ask him whatever you wanted to ask him then. 